welcome to another episode of Addiction Audio, the podcast for the journal Addiction. Uh, joining me today for this special episode is uh, Professor Robert West, who is Professor Emeritus of Health Psychology at UCL. Uh, Robert, thank you for coming on to Addiction Audio. It's a great pleasure. Um, uh, probably also worth noting at this point that uh, until very recently, for those of you who may not know, Robert West was the um, uh, editor-in-chief of Addiction Journal. So you're here today to talk about the paper authoring tool. So this is for um, two armed randomised controlled trials at the moment. Well, actually, so the paper authoring tool uh, uh, has been extended now and it can handle actually in theory any number of arms of a randomised controlled trial. Um, And it can also handle pilot and feasibility trials, uh, which could, for example, include um, single arm studies where you're trying to look at uh, how feasible it is to recruit or to deliver an intervention, um, you know, what the level of acceptability and so on is. The, the paper, paper authoring tool, I mean, it's fairly well titled. It's, it's for authoring papers and it's a tool to do so. So, for example, let's say I've just completed a two-armed randomised control trial or a randomised control trial with any number of arms. How do I then use PAT and, and why should I do so? I think probably the ideal scenario is one in which you used PAT to um, develop the protocol for the study as well, because what PAT does is it prompts you for all the uh, key bits of information that you should report when um, uh, reporting a trial. But that includes uh, things that you may not have collected information on. um, uh, And so by the time you come to put the information into PAT, it may be too late to do anything about it. Um, But PAT will also, and this is why I think it's very very helpful for um, things like protocols or even grant applications, uh, is it prompts you in a very systematic way for the reasoning behind your choices. Uh, For example, what's the reasoning behind your choice of comparator group or comparator groups? What's the logic model for your intervention? Why do you think it's going to work? Um, What's the basis for your estimate of um, effect size and so on? So so, um, step one in an ideal world would be uh, as you're developing your intervention and starting to write your protocol, you could use PAT for that purpose. And of course... um, then uh, when it comes to writing it up, you've got all the uh, ingredients in place so that you can just finish the job by presenting the results discussion and making any changes that you need to make because, you know, most trials don't go exactly according to plan. So, you know, you can then adapt and, and um, you know, while I'm on the subject, one of the things Pat does in a very systematic way is to um, prompt you for protocol deviation. So the extent to which your study as finally implemented matched what the original protocol was. It's interesting that because actually that's it's really important reporting, but people can often get quite shy about saying that actually this changed quite a lot as we were going on. But but that's really important that people do report that. It's, it is really important, and the major medical journals will require you, um, quite rightly, to say how the study deviated from the original protocol. Now, it's not a crime you know, for the study to deviate because life happens, and you know, there, are, there could be all sorts of reasons. I mean, one of the most obvious ones is failure to recruit all the people you thought you were going to recruit, or uh, that you didn't recruit the kind of people, or you needed to adopt a, um, an additional recruitment channel. Uh, or it could be that um, 
the uh, for some reason this happened to us, uh, uh, you had to change the primary outcome measure. Uh, now, obviously, you're going you, you need to do that before uh, the end of the trial and before you do any analyses um, and, and get that reported and the and the protocol variation logged and registered. Um, so, yeah, it's um, you, people have to do it. Um, the, one of the interesting things I think you know we'll see going forward is that if you have to report it in this very specific uh, structured way in PAT, it makes the job of reviewers and journals so much easier because they don't have to scour through you know, the original protocol and then what you and then your write up and try to figure out how, if at all, the thing has changed because it's all there very clearly in black and white. One of the drives for developing uh, the paper authoring tool was. I think during your time at Addiction when you spotted that there was lots of information that was routinely missing from from research reports. Uh, What kind of information was routinely missing and which bits frustrated you the most? Yeah, I think even, um, you know, really top quality journals and top quality research teams, um, mostly, I would say, maybe not 100%, but mostly fail to include key bits of information that are required to evaluate a study really well, and particularly for evidence synthesis to to enable people to integrate data from one study to another. Um, And uh, or even if that information is provided, it's often not provided in a way that allows you to to use it terribly well. So um, the sorts of things that uh, classically get left off are things like fidelity, to what extent was the inter- intervention delivered as uh, prescribed and uh, and adherence? To what extent uh, did the um, participants in the intervention of the study follow the procedures? You, know, you will often see a nod at those things, but really not information that would uh, allow you to get a really good handle on uh, the impact that that might have had on the intervention uh, effectiveness. And... and you know, that's absolutely critical, obviously. You know, if if only I mean, there's one study which shall be nameless, <laughs> um, in which you know the, the level of adherence of the participants to it was like less than ten percent. So you know, well, the true answer to the question, does this intervention work, is we have no idea because no one did it. <laughs> so you know, it's a. Uh, um, that's that, those are those are classic things. Um, I, I think um, interventions are very poorly, very poorly described in uh, most uh, cases. Uh, but what uh, Pat does is it, it it uses the tidier, what's known as the tidier framework, which is a uh, a really nice structured way of uh, describing interventions in terms of what what did it consist of, what did it contain, what was the mode of delivery. Uh, who delivered it, what was their level of training, and so on. So you've got all the different bits of uh, information there. And Pat will take you in a very structured way through that, and a very easy way, and make it easy for you to report that information. Um, and it has behind it um, a, a taxonomy of behavior change techniques, which are very often used in addiction studies, so that you can actually just select from a drop-down list from the taxonomy of behavior change techniques and, and that then gets coded into your uh, output document. And, and there it is. You know, no one needs to try and figure out what on earth it was you did. 
Um, I, I have this frustration, um, or I've had this frustration in the past when looking at uh, reports of online learning. You know, there's lots of opportunities through the internet and and you have an intervention which is described as an online learning package featuring mixed media and you have no idea what they've done or, or who's done how much of it. Um, and so actually providing that as a research report is 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 almost, is next to meaningless. It's true. It's like it's like a drug company saying, well, uh, we developed a tablet. <laughs> yeah. OK, uh, what was it like? Well, it was blue. <laughs> <laughs> it worked on some internal organs. That's right. Probably. You also say, I mean, about the writing up process, uh, well, I think one of your comments is that the writing up process for research reports is notoriously inefficient, um, historically incredibly inefficient. I mean, what, why do you think it is so inefficient? You know, research is, is noted for its exactness and its efficiency, and, and yet we have this very, very inefficient way of writing up research. I mean, does and, and does the paper authoring tool make that easier or simpler? It is incredibly efficient because, uh, well, it, in that, uh, it, uh, it has to go through multiple, multiple stages, you know, uh, before you, you know, while, you know, people are commenting and saying, oh, you didn't put that in, you didn't put that in, or, or you know, this needs to be done, it's explained differently and expressed differently. Um, and then you get to the point where you submit it to the journal. And always, without exception, the journal will come back with a whole load more stuff which you didn't put in or you put in in a way that the journal thought wasn't uh, sufficiently clear or, uh, or accurate. And so you'll then go through further revisions. So you've got all the pre-submission stuff, long process, which can literally take months. Um, and then you've got the journal process. And, and of course, the reviewers, uh, the, the review process is inefficient because the reviewers are having to scour through this text um, that uh, you've written to try to figure out where the bits of information that are needed are to be found, uh, only to discover it's not there at all, and then they can review it. Or they will say, well, actually, I, I found this, but it was in the wrong place, uh, or it's not expressed very well. So, so you've got, it's, it's very iterative. And the and the, the issue is that what happens is that and I you know I've written up countless randomized trials over the years, um, and is that you start the process somewhere you sometimes start with the abstract sometimes start with a table of results, uh, you know there's various ways of doing it and you think as you're doing it well this is all right you know this isn't too onerous, um, uh, and it's only after you've been doing it for weeks or months so keep going back and sometimes run around in circles and so on, you realise how much time has been, an effort has been spent in developing this thing, when if you spent a little bit more time and effort right at the beginning using something like the paper authoring tool, you could have sh shortened that process and cut down on the number of revisions. And reviewers could see at a stroke really clearly even if you were too thick to see it, because it comes up in the paper authoring tool, the big red blob saying this information's not here. You know, the reviewers uh, could uh, easily spot where the information is missing. So, um, yeah, it should. I mean, I don't know uh, for sure that it will, <laughs> because it's still early days, but I would be gobsmacked if it didn't. Within the paper authoring tool is, uh, is a research question wizard, which will which will accurately tell you what your research question is. It's, 
And it can be notoriously difficult to, to work out and to hone in on what your research question is. And there's something a little bit unsettling about having some artificial intelligence that knows your question better than you do. Uh, but can you describe why that particular element is so important? Yeah, so this is the heart of every research study, isn't it, is, is the set of research questions. And um, again, I can tell you from, you know, literally decades of editing and writing that the research question is one of the most poorly uh, expressed parts of a paper. And it's not that people are stupid, you know, I mean, it's just, it's just humans are human. And so, and like with anything else, the more help you can give people um, to, to do it right first time, then, you know, the better it will be. It's a, it's a difficult thing to do. And so classically, for example, where, where the research questions go wrong? Well, first of all, very often, surprisingly, um, you'll get studies that don't have research questions. You think, what? what? How is that even possible? But it, it is very possible, and you see it all the time. What they have is a set of sort of rather general aims and objectives, but that's not the same thing as a research question. A research question is, what specifically are you comparing with what and for what reason? Then the second thing is that research questions in RCTs um, should take into account all the factors that may influence whatever the outcome is. And that includes the population under study, the setting, and exposure to the intervention. So, for example, you know, a well-formed research question uh, will be something like, uh, in the case of smoking, and thinking about a, a paper that we wrote up was published in the New England Journal, and if we had written it using the paper authoring tool, it would have been a better research question. It would be something like, um, what is the effect of cytosine uh, versus placebo um, in helping, uh, in achieving a 12-month sustained abstinence rate? So that's the outcome. You've got the drug, you've got the comparator, 12-month sustained abstinence rates. Uh, that's the outcome um, in, um, let's describe the population, in smokers seeking help with stopping smoking, okay, population Okay, what's the setting? The setting is a hospital, uh, hospital smokers clinics. And let's say, let's look then at the exposure in people who are allocated the intervention, not people who completed the course, people who are allocated to treatment. And so you put all those ingredients together, and you have a well formed research question. Um, now, that is, you know, people very rarely put that well formed thing together. But if, 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 what the papering author do, does is it just simply asks you, well, what's your experimental group? Okay, what's your control group? You know, what other groups have you got? Uh, what's your population? What's your setting? What's your exposure? Bingo, here comes the research question. Done. It, it forms this research question. And it also, um, once you've filled in all the, um, all the relevant areas, it, can, it gives you a, a draft manuscript at the end of it. So, I mean, to what, how complete is that manuscript? It, I, I assume it doesn't write your discussion for you. It doesn't write it for you. You write it for yourself using the tool. Um, so uh, it, depending on how you um, put the information in, it could be a final manuscript. But mostly because of, you know, all the journal requirements in terms of space and also the fact that people like to uh, uh, um, express things more economically than would necessarily be um, required for a computer readable version of the paper, for example, <clears throat> then... Uh, it will the, uh, the way to see it. I think is it will write the uh, um, it will give you the information and it will write a draft. 
And then if you want to wordsmith it, you know, knock yourself out. <laughs> um, but um, and so what I what I um, do, in fact, with the tool is uh, if I've got a big block of te- so some of that, a lot of the paper authoring tool in the introduction, the discussion are text that you write, you, you know, you put it in um, because that's all context. And it's stuff where, you know, you want to tell a story um, uh, and you want to explain things and get things across to people. So you put the text in and it will put it in the right place. What it will do um, in the introduction discussion is give you really uh, structured prompts. So, for example, what are the theoretical implications of the study? What are the practical, clinical implications? Um, you know, what further research do you think you know needs to be done? All of that kind of stuff. What were the limitations? Um, and in terms of limitations, it will prompt you, for example, okay, what were the limitations? Uh, which again, people very often forget to do in terms of your sample. You know, how generalizable is it? What were the limitations in terms of your outcome measure? Is the outcome measure something that uh, you know is sensitive to what it is that you're you're interested in? For example, uh, what are the limitations in terms of statistical power? It, it will prompt you for all that stuff, so you don't have to keep reminding yourself what it is. It's all there for you, and then you can uh, you can write your introduction discussion. But yes, it will produce. Um, a Word document. Um, you can also preview it as you go along. Uh, you know, at any point, you can just press the preview button and see how it's going. Um, but the other thing, which I which I think is um, uh, probably the coolest thing of the whole uh, uh, paper authoring tools, is it will produce produce what's known as a JSON file, JSON, uh, which is a computer readable version of your paper. And what that means, if you can imagine that. Um, is that someone doing a systematic review can automatically search your whole paper to find what behavior change techniques you use, for example, what the age groups were of the people involved, what the intervention and comparator was, what the fidelity was, et cetera, et cetera. So when we're doing evidence synthesis, we can expand the extent to which we can do that just so much more than is possible practicable now but it can be done automatically you can get computers to take the uh, the json file and you do, you write code to extract the key bits of information and put it all together and literally months or years of human toil can be done in like minutes can you imagine so uh, you know i think this will be a huge step forward with the machine learning um machine reading a computer reading Computer reading, machine learning, machine reading. <laughs> well, machine, re- machine learning used for natural language processing or computer reading. So, with with that element of it, um, uh, is is there a certain point that you need to achieve? So, do you need to have say forty, fifty percent of studies produce this uh, machine readable file before that becomes um, kind of feasible as a as a as an ongoing process to do that kind of review? I don't think so. I think um, I think. Uh, you know, imagine imagine uh, the scenario going forward in the next two or three years, where some papers have been authored using the tool, and a lot of papers have been authored without using the tool. At least the ones using the tool will have saved the reviewer a massive amount of time in terms of extracting the key bits of information. Also, um, anyone who's authored a paper using the tool, their research will be much more discoverable and easy to find. So it's not just a question of extracting the information, it's also actually finding the paper. Uh, so, so, you know, people who use the tool, um, their stuff will be easier to find, the information will be easier to extract. So 
Um, and and I, I suspect what will happen as people start to use the tool is that reviewers will get very frustrated and annoyed by people who haven't used it because of the time it's going to take them to extract the information. And, you know, for, for really so little effort on the part of authors using the tool, uh, you could just, uh, you know, save the reviewers all this time. But the other thing is, you know, when, when you do a, a systematic review, and then like two thirds of the way through or right near the end, someone says, hmm, wouldn't it be great if we also included this variable? And you go, no, <laughs> let's not do that. Um, with, with, if, with the variable already encoded, uh, you know, in a machine readable form, they go, OK, press the button. Yeah, OK, that's done. It kind of um, it almost opens the door to the that kind of living review process, which hasn't really quite yet taken hold or, or become feasible. Um, so if, if everything has this machine read uh, capability, uh, would it then be possible to, ha to, to set up a program that just automatically updates with the latest evidence on a research question? Not only would it be possible, but it is being done. So, <laughs> um, yes, because um, uh, I mean, the Human Behaviour Change Project, which is really this is uh, our part of now, um, was uh, specifically set up to, in an ongoing way, uh, accumulate and read all the sort of uh, information coming in on uh, the first use cases, smoking cessation trials. But, you know, it'll read it every day shove it into the database and um and then you could do you could use the prediction algorithm in the human behavior change project about which more on a later date uh to say right in this population with this intervention with this setting delivered in this way what what uh, 12 month uh, sustained abstinence rate do i think uh, we will get it will chunter away for a few minutes and then say i think it'll be 10.9 uh, <laughs> give or take um so yes uh, uh and what, so what's going on with the Human Behaviour Change Project at the moment is, of course, it's having to use extremely expensive and not always 100% accurate by any means natural language processing to try to extract some of this information. And But with the paper authoring tool, bingo, it's all in there in machine-readable form. So those two uh, things working together, the, uh, the uh, tools like the Human Behaviour Change Project prediction tool an evidence synthesis tool together with the paper authoring tool should be a pretty powerful combination. Um, so, so, to, so you'll be able to get today's confidence intervals rather than uh, a study that was written, that, that happened a year ago, that was written up a, six months ago and that has only just now been published. Uh, what, what are then the implications for the peer review process? If, if the... Um, if the update is immediate and uh, has been done by artificial intelligence or by computers, is there still a need for that result to go through peer review before before making it publicly available? I, I think so. Um, and the reason is, as we've discovered with other um, AI systems that uh, are unsupervised, is that they can go off the rails. Uh, <laughs> and, um, you know, it, it, so... So the human element is always needed there as a check, you know, as, as a reality check and a sensibility check. And, and, you know, AI systems, good AI systems will have those built in. Um, but the human is not having to do the grind. You know, it's, it would be like these days having, you know, bank clerks sort of working out what the balance is of your bank account the whole time. And whenever you, you phone up the bank or you go online, 
you know, there's someone sitting there in the bank going, hang on, hold on a minute, and then cal- using a calculator to work out your your balance. You know, so it's getting rid of all that that stuff, freeing up the humans to do the clever stuff, which is about the interpretation and about the strategic thinking. And and the beautiful analogy there, I think, for me is uh, is chess, where um, now the best chess players are in effect a hybrid of uh, computers and grandmasters working together uh, in order to you know, in order to make the best games uh, because the humans on their own can do things that computers can't do and vice versa. And, and just a quick plug for uh, Gary Kasparov's book, Deep Thinking, which is a, just a wonderful and beautifully wittily uh, written account of kind of like the history of uh, human-machine interactions to make um, you know, uh, f- from the Industrial Revolution all the way through to when he was beaten by the IBM program Deep Blue uh, for the World Chess Championship. Fantastic. Um, is there anything else that you want to say that we've not covered? I think that um, what people need to know about the paper authoring tool at this stage is this is the phase one product. Um, it is constantly and continually uh, being upgraded and improved, and the user interface, which is already, I, I you know, it's, it's, it's already undergone a lot of testing, um, is pretty good. But it's a complex, you know, it's a very complex program, and so you know, literally every day uh, we're pushing updates um, and uh, uh, and improving things. And the best way of improving things is for users to give us feedback on what they think is missing, what they don't like what they find clumsy or clunky, um, what new facilities they would like and so on. So, so I would, for users, uh, I would say uh, get involved, try it out. You can't break it. <laughs> it might break you, <laughs> but you can't break it. Um, try it out and just mess, play around with it to get a, get a feel for what it's like. Uh, and then finally, what I am doing, because I recognize it's quite daunting for people, to write a whole paper um, using the tool with all the bits and pieces that um, are required. We're developing a sort of pat light um, where uh, the, if you like, you can, you can focus in just on those uh, key core components which uh, you know, a, a good journal would expect you to report on um, and get straight in, stuck in with those and not feel that you've got to, um, you know, write text for all the other stuff, which, uh, frankly, hardly anyone reads anyway. Excellent. The uh, <laughs> confessions of a former editor-in-chief. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, that's fantastic. Um, so from, from chess to artificial intelligence to freeing up humans to do the strategic thinking. Um, Professor Robert West, thank you so much for your time. It's a great pleasure.